Today is Palm Sunday, and I worship Pastor Lee Hudson will be speaking. It's Palm Sunday. And uh, contrary to what you might think, it has been really scary and sad for me this week, or actually the last two weeks, to read about and study and think about the last week before Jesus' crucifixion. It has worked on me in a really weird way. Uh, there's tremendous joy in it, of course, because of who Jesus was, you know, that he came, that he lived, that he died, that he rose again, that we might be free, and there's great cause for celebration. The tomb is empty. It is, or none of it works. The reason why we're here is because it works, that the whole thing fits, that God's story for us is that Jesus came, and he lived, and he died, and he rose again, and he lives today. He stands next to his Father in heaven. He makes intercession for you and I. He is coming back. He's coming back. He's coming back. He's coming back. He is. I believe that. But it's been scary. I'm grateful, uh, but it's been scary. And I have a lot of fear today that, uh, that what you hear today is going to fall way short of communicating the depth and the wonder and the amazing things that happened the last five days before the crucifixion. It is incredible. I am, I am scratching the surface of the surface of the surface today. I really am. I'm going to hang out right around Matthew 19 to 20, run right in there. I'm going to jump around a little bit, so there's no central text other than that. This really is a harmony of all four of what the Gospels say, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So I'm going to draw from all of that. We're going to take a, a moment to stand in the place of a very simple man who happened to be an amazing God. Come to save us from ourselves. We're going to look at a moment where Jesus stepped across a threshold from which he could not return. That's what Palm Sunday is. It was his entrance into Jerusalem the last week before he was crucified. To turn back, my friends, I, I have to tell you, to turn back would be to refuse his destiny, his passion, and his purpose as God become flesh. But also, to turn back would be to have forsaken, to turn back on, and to refuse his destiny and purpose and, and, and vision and, uh, and true, holy anger as a man. He's fully God and fully man. I don't get it either. Uh, I don't have to. I just know that's what the Scriptures teach. It's what we believe. He's born to be a servant born for one purpose, to do the will of his Father, that's Jesus. Born for one purpose, to be a servant, born yet to be a king. And he is that, born to suffer immense loss for our great gain. So it's worked on me this week. Because Jesus, like a courageous war hero, stepped into this battle from which he knows that there will be no return. He stepped forward to finish his work as God and man, and more practically for us, we might get a glimpse of how powerful this thing is, to consider those of us in this room who have become parents. It's the same kind of threshold. We don't get to just take it back once we become parents. The birth of our first child, i got to tell you, I mean, how many of you are parents? Raise your hands. birth of your first child is a cosmic and terrifying event, both. It's crazy. And for guys, i got to tell you, I mean, we're standing there witness to something, and our wives are in, are in tremendous pain, and we really got nothing to say about that. Like, I get it, honey. And she's saying, no, you don't. Um, and it happens so fast, and, and it is, but it's this amazing moment that gets seared in our heads, and we know at once we are so glad and so abjectly terrified at the same time. It is so scary. That's the kind of threshold it is. It's just a glimpse. Athletes are accustomed to this kind of threshold. Watch a girls' uh, high school soccer game this week. All girls' high school soccer players should wear football gear. It's rough. We think, oh, it's girls. No, they're mean. Like, no, no, you're girls. You're supposed to be, like, nice to each other. Athletes understand the threshold. 
of what it takes to be great. Can't come back from it. If you're going to be great, you have to train, and the training is lonely and it's painful. And there's hours and hours and hours on a field or on a court somewhere to perfect a craft. Some of you who are uh, old enough to remember Larry Bird, basketball player, one of the most amazing, pure uh, shots that ever lived, nine hours a day on his shot, just his shot. Crazy. Lonely, lonely, lonely. It's not, it isn't moments out in the, under, under the lights and with the crowd and all that kind of stuff. It's a threshold. It really is. Parents, athletes, artists are the same way. They spend years and years in obscurity perfecting a craft. I couldn't tell you I love beautiful art. I couldn't tell you outside of the most famous artwork that there is. I don't know who does that stuff. I just know that I enjoy it. And there's been a, a lonely place where artists who perfect a craft, be it in voice or theater or painting or sculpture or something like that, we enjoy art all the time. We have no idea who those people are. They cross into something from which they cannot come back. Heroes, parents, athletes, artists, it, it, those, there's a hundred par- parallels I could draw from. They fall way short of describing what it is that Jesus sat before that day, that Palm Sunday. Because here's what Jesus knows, or he's not who he says he is. He stands at this, he, he sits on a, on a donkey. This, I'm going to explain all this. He sits on a donkey before the gates of Jerusalem, and he knows that within the, next, within the next 144 hours, he will be beaten beyond recognition. Isaiah 52:14 says, "Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being." And his form marred beyond human likeness. He would endure an execution at the hands of the Romans that was designed for maximum humiliation and maximum pain before death. They knew they, they had perfected the art of dragging it out as long as they could without the victim dying. And they were amazed that Jesus, it only took three hours to kill him because, you, because normally it would take hours and hours and hours. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sin. The beating for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. It's rough. Last couple weeks thinking about all this, it really is. Because it happened. There's lots of historical record. It happened. Even before he raises from the dead. Greg will talk about the next week. So there's my king. There's your king. There's our king. There's my king sitting before the gates of Jerusalem seeing prophecies almost innumerable about to be fulfilled with himself at the center. He knows it. He's about to step over the threshold into an incomprehensible rejection and pain for you and for me. It's Palm Sunday, the beginning of the most important week in all of human history. A lot is going to happen when love comes to town. That's what I've called this message today, when love comes to town. Many are going to claim to want it. Others are just going to deny it. Some are just going to attempt to kill it. A few, a very, very few will receive it. When love came to town that day, a lot of people claimed to want it because of all the hype, all about the show. Some denied it either overtly by open rejection or covertly by simply just ignoring it and saying, ah, this doesn't apply to me. If I've done my, my job today, this is you and me. We do this all the time. 
We claim to want it because of the hype. We deny it either openly or covertly behind the scenes just by saying, eh, whatever, I got a life to live. Others kill it. They try to kill that love outright out of fear that it will rob them of power and position or out of rage because Jesus did not meet their expectations of a warlord. Instead of a serving Messiah, come, they wanted a, a, a Messiah who would overthrow the Romans, who would occupy their country. They were looking for a warlord, not a king, not a real king. A few, a very, very, very few had the courage to receive it. And for those of us who have, we've never been the same. It has altered us deeply. How many of you have been changed by it? You know what I'm talking about. Not the same. It has been, at the time of this story, it, is, it has been 1,900, uh, today it's been 1,984 years since Jesus rode into Jerusalem that day, just about. 1,984 years. Before, before that, follow me now, before that, Jesus had not been in Jerusalem for two years. Previous to that visit, Jesus had not been in that city until the age of 12. He was 30 before he came back. Most of Jesus' work for most of his life took place in the northern part of Israel, out in the sticks. He lived and worked a long way from the central hub of, of politics and religion in Israel. He's from the bush. I knew I liked Jesus. He's from up north. Sounds Alaskan to me. We put this in perspective. Nazareth, where Jesus grew up and where he did most of his work, he did in this very, it's a small region, but it was about 90 miles north of Jerusalem. That's from here to the Talkeet and the Cutoff, if you leave from here and go north, okay? Caesarea Philippi, that's where he was, that's where he was transfigured. That's where, that's where his disciples got a, got a vision of him as God, and he, and he was on a mountain with Elijah and Joseph. That's 150 miles north of Jerusalem, long way away. Well, that's just about to Denali from here, pretty close. If I don't have my math right, don't correct me on that. Okay, just follow it. <laughs> so he's way up north. But in those days, see, there's no technology. You didn't, just, you didn't just get in your car and drive for a couple hours and get there. There's no technology. So it might as well have been from here to New York. He's a long ways away. Several days. I'm not, if I start walking now, I think I could get to the talk eating the cutoff in three days, walking eight hours a day. I'm not doing that. Nobody got time for that. I'm not doing that. No way. Okay? The point is, I believe, here's what I believe. Here's what I hope you see. I think that the greater, greater Jerusalem, the population that was there, had barely, because of Jesus' rare visits to Jerusalem, they had no idea who he was. They heard rumors, but they barely heard of him. There were rumors of this guy up north doing crazy things. Well, that sounds like Alaska. I don't think it registered to most of the city who he was, and I don't believe they much cared. We hear stories about stuff that happens in northern Alaska. It doesn't really affect us. We're very removed from what's happening up there. I know the economy in Anchorage is supported by the oil industry and whatnot. I've never been north of Fairbanks. I have no idea what it looks like up there other than pictures. And here's, here's what I want you to get a hold of because this amazed me this week, and maybe I'm just amazed by weird things. But there, there was a lot. Anchorage is a lot smaller than Jerusalem was at that time. It's smaller. I thought it was the other way around. There were, one source claims that there was about 2 million people in Jerusalem that Passover week. 
four times the population of Alaska. It was a zoo, one city. No Twitter, no Instagram, no iPhones, no communication, no Facebook. Can you get a hold of that? That's a lot of people. No access to any kind of media for communication. And, and we really believe today that the word of some obscure prophet 90 to 100 mi- 150 miles north has registered to the greater population in Jerusalem. No way. They didn't know who he was. They're all buzzing around in what was an ethnic. It was an ethnic and religious holiday. That's what it was. Went back hundreds of years. It's a big party, kind of. It's a religious ceremony, but there's a lot going on. There are three times, here's, again, I'm amazed by weird things. There were three times of, there were three times the number of people that showed up in Jerusalem that week than, than the number of people who showed up for Mardi Gras in New Orleans in 2006. You feel this yet? There is a load of people there. Like, it's a lot. Crazy. No technology. So Jesus made his way from Jerusalem, and a large number of people, a large number of people followed him from up north on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. It could have been thousands. He gets to Jerusalem, and he stands before the tomb of his friend Lazarus. Lazarus has been dead long enough to decay. They can smell it. That's how long he's been dead. And Jesus raises him from the dead, calls him out of the tomb. And a whole bunch more people who were witness to that event joined this big throng of people who were hanging around with Jesus that Passover. By the time he did, and this is what the Scriptures teach, by the time he healed two men of their blindness outside of Jericho, the Scripture says that a great crowd followed him. Well, if for perspective, there's already two million people hanging out in Jerusalem, and it says a great crowd followed Jesus. There was a lot of people. And I get a picture of this scene because I've got, see, I've got the postcards and the paintings in my head of, that represent Palm Sunday. Have you ever seen those? Like, of what it's nice and it's intimate and it's warm and it's kind of feels like home, down home. It's kind of country. It's, it wasn't like that. It was not intimate. Not the way the scriptures teach it. Not the way I understand it. So you got the northern Gal- you got the northern Galileans who have come from Jesus, come with Jesus from Talkeetna. Okay. Really. They they follow Jesus and they and they just they just want what he has in the moment. They're just hanging out to see what happens. And they've they've come with him. Then there are people who've joined this crowd who've watched this man raise a guy from the dead and heal a couple of guys from blindness. And these are the people who, who kind of join this crowd to just follow the show. And all of them together, they sense this building tension because the Scriptures teach that in the, that in the middle of their miracles that are happening are some, are, is dialogue with some, with some really prominent political and religious leaders, and Jesus really torques them. And he's been gone. So now you've got this guy who's got all of these people that walk into a massive city with no technology at all, and there's this tension, and people it's just a mob that starts to gather around Jesus. It is a crescendo. Of, as I've spent time meditating on this for the last two weeks, it's this crescendo that's building tension. It looks like and it just, it's going to explode. That's before he ever walks into the, he comes into the city, Okay. And in the middle of all of that, Jesus stops, and he issues this order to two of his disciples. Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. 
Pay very close attention, if you would. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you will say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, that's Jerusalem, Say to Jerusalem, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Now, the symbol of here is, the symbolism here is crazy. I'm just going to graze it today. Not only this, is this a fulfillment of yet another hundreds of, year, hundreds of years old prophecy, there's the meaning. Jesus chose to enter the city of his trial, death, and resurrection on an unbroken donkey colt. It had never been ridden. That's why the donkey's mother walked alongside. So there's, there's the female donkey and its colt. And Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on, 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 on his colt with the mother walking alongside. Now watch this. The symbol of the unbroken donkey colt is, is not, that's not hard for me to get around get my head around. The, un, the symbol of the unbroken donkey colt is one of humility, purity, and innocence. But the symbol's deeper yet, and this is the one that got me. In American culture, we see riding around on a donkey is rather underwhelming, right? We would expect a, a king to come into a city on this big horse that's armored and looking like Russell Crowe, and it's gladiator, and, and it's big, right? That's what we think. Jews didn't use horses for warfare. They did it on foot, and they used beasts of burden as aid, Okay. So here's the deal. In Jewish culture, for one to ride into Jerusalem, the center of political and religious power, for one to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey with much celebration, because that's what's going on, is the way an ancient Jewish king like David would enter the city after a huge military conquest. The Jews saw a completely different thing. They're like, well, he's a Jew, and we've heard that he's a rabbi, but he's riding into the city as, as if he is King David, just come back from killing several thousand people. They're torqued. That, they didn't even have to say anything. So Jesus is making both a statement of both, of his, both his humility in riding the unbroken colt and his lordship as a humble king to a group of people in the city who reject, reject and kill him. Crazy. It's a setup, see? Because the way this whole thing unfolds and because of the number of people that were there and the amount of tension that already exists in the city, these people are going to go into shock, and they did. When they see this vagabond no-name from up north, like, who is this coming from Nazareth? They know where Nazareth is. It's out in the sticks. It's Talkeetna. Who's this? Okay? Nothing against Talkeetna. Who is this vagabond who's coming in and he's, he's riding into the city on this symbol of monarchy as if he's a king? And he's entering the city, the city of two million people gathered for the Passover. He's got enough people to create an insurrection. There's a lot of them. I think that there were conservatively several thousand people with Jesus that walked in. It had to have been because wait, wait till you see what happens. Now, remember that the city is already under a ton of stress because it's under Roman rule, under a Roman prefect by the name of Pontius Pilate. And he served Tiberius Caesar. And there are two million people in the city already for the Passover. This whole thing is a loaded gun. We get the name Palm Sunday from what happened as Jesus entered the city. 
with Jesus are the northern Galileans from Talkeetna, most of whom are on the big hippie pilgrimage. Really, that's what it is. With them are all the spectators who just wanted to see something spectacular. I wonder if he'll do that again. Big crowd of people. What's he going to do next? They're celebrating Jesus entering the city as if he were a Jewish king returned from a great victory. And everybody sees it. They're laying palm branches at the feet of the animal as it walks forward and their coats and all of that stuff. And they're doing it right in front of the religious elite in the city already. And they get it right away. The rest of the city has no idea what to do with the chaos. They don't know. And so all, immediately they, they wonder, well, who are we supposed to side with? What are we supposed to do with this? And a large Roman garrison led by Pontius Pilate in that city to try to keep it under control, they're trying to keep all this craziness under order already. There, there's a giant civil war about to happen right in front of them. Now stop. Okay. How many of you, by a show of hands, live today in the home you were born in? Raise your hands. That's what I thought. One person. Yeah, you're like eight. <laughs> you too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't mess with me. <laughs> if you're if you're forty years forty years old plus. We don't live in the home we were born in. Okay, we're not. This is a picture of my childhood home. You haven't, Nate? That's my home. This is as close as I could get to what Jesus was feeling in that moment right here. This is my childhood home. This is my grandfather's homestead. It's already messing me up. I look at that picture, and I, sat, I caught myself this week. I sat at my computer, and I was looking at this photograph after I scanned it in, and I just kind of zoned out for like 10 minutes looking at that photograph. My grandfather built that place by hand in the 30s, by hand. I still have his, his draw knife is out of my dad's place he peeled the logs with. I can still, I can put myself in that picture and I can smell my grandfather's shop. He was a blacksmith. I can smell it. I sat on those concrete steps right underneath that wooden arch with those elk antlers. I sat underneath that arch and picked cottonwood seeds out of my socks. You ever see, you know, and I always thought they looked kind of like sugar smacks, cereal, you know. So I didn't really mind it, you know, until I, you know, got older and had a place of my own, and then the cottonwood seeds were kind of a nuisance. But I, I picked them out of my socks on, that, on the, those concrete steps. I stood under that concrete arch and read a letter when I was 13 years old from Jenny Hooper. She was from a day's drive in Montana, and I met her at a church camp, and she told me she didn't want to be my girlfriend anymore. <laughs> I'm telling you guys, I, I, could, I know which direction I was standing when I opened that letter. I can see her handwriting, and I can smell the perfume. Why she would send me a perfumed letter telling me she didn't want me to be, her girl, be my girlfriend anymore, I don't know. Hey, it's sixth grade. Who cares? <coughs> it's like, I really like you. No, I don't. <laughs> right there. My father's footprints are in the concrete on, that, on the steps underneath that arch. He put them there when he was five years old. I watched my grandfather to the right of theirs where his shop was at. I watched him swing a hammer for the last time at 75 when he stopped working. 
and this is what really messes me up, so I'm going to say it quick. I hugged my grandmother mother for the last time on that porch right there. It was the last time I saw her alive. She made me a meal that day. It's my home. It's gone. It's in ruins today. It's still there, kind of, but it's not like that. I don't go back anymore. It's too painful. That's a holy place for me. Luke 19.41 says, When Jesus drew near and he saw the cities, he was his home. He wept over it, saying, Would you that even you had known on this day the things that make for peace? He's talking to his people. But now they're hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you to the ground. You and your children with, within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. They couldn't see who he was. They, wouldn't, they, didn't, they obviously didn't know him when they saw him. And Jesus sat, sat there before the city and allowed himself a moment to grieve his own loss and look over, the home, look over his home and weep. He sees what's coming. He knows the entire city will, be, will fall into ruin within the next few decades. That's exactly what happened. The Babylonians came. They tore it completely apart, blew the people out of it, sent them into exile. They didn't come back until the mid-40s of this century. And today where, the, where Solomon's temple was is an Islamic mosque. Get on Google Earth. You can see it. And there's a wall next to it where the Jews still mourn their loss today. Today. Probably like as we speak. And the reality is it's because they forfeited peace because they could not see the Prince of Peace. They forfeited it. And Jesus saw it. I, I can only see his grief. I can get a glimpse of it through the grief of my own loss, thinking about my own home and what it does to me when I think about it now. I can't ever go back. So Jesus wept. He sees what's coming, and he can't turn back from it, and it will never be the same. He proceeds into the city, and a lot of things happen. Upheaval. Scripture says that in the entire city, all two million people were shaken as if by a giant earthquake or an apocalyptic event. The whole city went into absolute craziness. It got so crazy that the Jewish elite were able to trump up this stupid trial, that, and they, they didn't have anything to charge him with, but because the Romans could see the whole thing was going to blow apart and cause this big civil, civil war, the Jews were a actually able to con them into executing Jesus so that they could keep this blood off their hands or some stupid thing. I can't think of anything more tragic in the way of uh, power and authority misused against the innocent. I can't. Maybe the Holocaust. I, I, can't, I can't even start that conversation. I don't even know. I can't put my mind around how, what, a, what, a, what a travesty of justice it was. They didn't have anything to charge him with. All he did was raise people from the dead and heal them and talk about the kingdom of God and love them. That's all he did. I don't use a word that's kind of you're not supposed to use in church. The only people he pissed off was the Jews, was, was the Pharisees. Sorry, Greg. Okay. Okay. <laughs> it's the truth. That's the, they're the only ones who got mad about it. And by the time it was done, Jesus died in the presence of really four people who stayed with him. 
out of 2 million. Four people. A centurion, his mother, John, the disciple whom he loved, and a, and a forgiven prostitute who would go, and go through anything, including death, to express her gratitude. Four people. Everybody else? The hippies from up north? People who just wanted a show? The city was already there? Definitely the, the elite blew them all out. Four people. Love came to town that day. Jesus' final display of emotion with deep sadness before entering the city. What was it? His final display before he went into the city? It wasn't to shame him. It was love. Wept over him. Breathed his last. And what was his final expression? Love. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. Forgive them. Love. Love comes to town. It's still happening. People do predictable things. Many will claim they want it. But not one member of the crowd that entered the city with Jesus that day sang his praises on the day of his, on the day of his death. They weren't in support of him then. They all left, every one of them. When love comes to town, others just deny it outright. It's like, oh, I'm too busy. It's too scary. I don't know what he's talking about. I'm not going to choose sides. It's too polarizing. He's too scary. I'm not going to do it. And they just go on. You know, we either, go, either just say, no, I don't believe that, or we just kind of allow ourselves into a rut and deny him out of omission. Others try to kill it. It's pretty easy to see. The whole story was a big setup. Don't listen to it. What he's talking does not fit our interpretation or expectation of a Messiah, of a Messiah deliver who's coming in much, he has to come in a much different package than that. He has to, or we're not going to believe it. Don't listen to him. He's a heretic. He's a fake. Give us your money, and we'll tell you the truth. That's exactly what happened. Commit yourself to us. Hey, the institution's going to save you, so you give us your money, and we'll tell you what the truth is. Don't think for yourself. Don't believe him. That's how they did it. These days, it's called legalism. The genuine love doesn't know any hierarchy. It's just us together following Jesus. I'd like to say that I would not have left Jesus that week. I thought about that one too. I don't know where you're at. I'd like to say, hey, I wouldn't have left. I'd have been right there. I'd like to say that. I've chosen not to talk about it at all because <laughs> I just don't know. I know, that, I know now that the love of Christ has found me, and I know what I feel about that today. So if you ask me who I, who I, who I would identify with, who did stay, if I would have been given the privilege, and if I would have had the courage to stay with Jesus, the one I identify with is the prostitute. I've chosen lots of things in my life. Maybe you have. Chosen lots of things in my life to attempt to gain love that doesn't cost very much. I gave a lot of myself to get affirmation from powerful people. I identify with her. That's as far as I've gotten into that dialogue because all I know is I'm grateful to have been set free by the love of Jesus and that my value before him is fixed. But what does it mean for us today? Sitting here, Palm Sunday. Is it just a setup for another holiday weekend? <laughs> it can be that. Another distraction to spend money on? And then we survive to Memorial Day and then 4th of July, and then Labor Day, 
then Halloween, and then Thanksgiving, and then Christmas, and then Valentine's Day, and then Palm Sunday, and then Easter, and we do it again. I mean, it can be that. I'll close with this. Greg, you guys can come up. Just like Jerusalem, 2,000 years ago, not many, not many people, not very many people are going to allow themselves to be found by this kind of love. The love that rode into town that day. Most, most of us are going to find our own solution. We're going to pick a solution until, you know, pick any solution but Jesus. We'll find one. And all of that is out the, outside the scope of what I'd share today, other than what I've learned from all these people who interacted with Jesus, either overtly or covertly, either in his presence or absent from him. Here's what I know. If you don't listen to any, you don't hear anything else I say today, listen to this. Nobody encounters the love of Jesus and stays the same. Nobody. You either reject it or you receive it. Yeah, you, even by, if you do nothing, you still have done something with it. We're going to run away, we're going to reject it, or we're going to receive it no matter what. We're going to do something with the love of Jesus before it's over. And perhaps maybe this Easter, maybe even today, you'll take a moment to consider his love and make a choice to follow him if you don't, if you don't know what this is about. And it's simple, people. It really is. If you don't know Jesus, your prayer can sound just like this. Jesus, please come be the Lord of my life. I don't understand it. I don't believe all of it. I don't trust it fully. But there's something in it that I need. That's so I submit to it. So I give myself to you, and I choose to follow you, and I choose to learn about you. I'm yours. It's that simple. And then what do you do? You put the prayer in your own words to commit your life to Jesus, and then do. Then what do you do? You keep coming back to church and learn about him. You get with people who are following him out of something more than hype. You get a Bible and just let it talk to you. You begin to pursue him, and you'll find that he's, he's, he's always been there. That's what it means to pursue Christ. And all week, all week I've been thinking about Jesus as the most powerful and yet most humble king ever in this way. I believe he would say to you this, this afternoon, I believe he would say to you, I'm not going to push you. I will be seen in the people who love you with my love. That's how I speak to you, but I'm not going to push. I love the verse in Revelation that says, I stand at the door and knock, and if, if someone opens the door, I'm going to come in and be with them. He's not going to kick it down. It's not how he rolls. Not going to push. I stand at the door of your heart and knock. Let me come in. Let me show you what's happened since love came to town.